Come down the aisle. I think Andre is there to receive you, I believe. Yeah, Andre's right there. He's going to teach you a great lesson. And, um, and if you're 24 and you want to go, you can go too. Um, hopefully we can get through this together well. Well, as uh, we may not have said this morning, our pastor has, has been traveling with, with Charlotte. We've been praying for him and Torstein and Colbyorn. And I think Brigida went as well. They've, been, they've gone out to Tennessee. That's in, that's in America. It's a state across the country. They went there and, um, to, to participate in, I guess, his, Torstein's final debate tournament. So we want to pray for them as they drive back. They actually drove their van, I believe. So we'll just pray that they get back safely and, um, and he, we can worship again with him. I think they come back on Tuesday. So he'll be here Wednesday night for small group for our, our fellowship time. This morning, we're continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So if you could turn there, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to look at a topic this morning. Uh, and you see it on your screen there. We're going to look at this concept of worship, this concept of, of worship. You know, we ask ourselves this question, or at least in preparing, we, we thought about this question, what is worship? You know, is, is worship merely the singing of the songs we do on Sunday morning? Is it, is it the playing of the guitar? Is it the, the music that we, that we play? Or is it something else? Is worship more than that? Um, and if it is more than that, if worship is more than just the music that we play, then how are we to understand worship? And then taken even further, uh, if we understand it, then how can we worship in the right, in the right way? Um, the term worship actually originates from the combination of, of two, one word and one suffix. Uh, the word worth, which means uh, merit, value, stature, and this, the suffix ship which is to say uh, a, 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 a prefix indicating a quality or a condition. And so this is to say that wor- worship, or you can say worth-ship, is the idea of ascribing merit, value, um, worth to one or a person or a thing. Now, in, in the context of what we do here at, at church and what we do as believers... We are in worship ascribing value, power, authority to who? To God, right? And so when we worship, whether it's through communion, when we take communion, taking communion is an act of worship. When we go and we study and with the Word of God and we read through it and we seek to understand the will of God, that's an act of worship. Of course, when we, when we sing, this is probably the most prominent way we think about worship because it's very expressive. We're, we're singing, we're talking, we're proclaiming, we're playing loud music. When we do that, we're worshiping in a very, uh, you could say, overt way. But the truth is, worship actually begins in our minds. You know, the idea being that if, if our thinking is not properly established, then when we go to the process of Worshiping in song, worshiping through communion, worshiping through studying the Word of God. We're, we're not going to do it uh, appropriately. You know, 
we, everything starts with our thinking, right? Everything begins with our thinking. Even now, we're all making thought choices. Each and every one of us, even me up here, we're making these thought choices. We're, we're making a decision as to uh, what's going to be important to us. What are we going to think about um, more readily? We're thinking about what we're going to do tonight at 1 o'clock. We're thinking about what Golden State is going to do this afternoon. Or maybe if you weren't thinking about it, you were thinking about it now, right? And everything begins in our, in our thinking. And then where our thinking goes, so goes our actions, right? And so if we, if we have in our minds this thought concerning God, that he is of value, that he is of merit, that he is of worth, then we're going to treat him that way. And we're going to treat the things that he has both directed us to do and the things that he's teaching us with the same worth. This Bible, right, is an expression of God's worth. And if we have a view of God, then we're going to have a certain view of this, of this book as it's been given to us. Now, no man has no master. Can you guys repeat that with me? Just to kind of make sure you're awake. No man has no master. Let's, okay, now, let's say it now. No man has no master. Every human being has a master. Every human being is going to have their thinking controlled by something. Moved and motivated by something, right? I saw a guy with a uh, bumper sticker last week. He said, on his, on his bumper sticker, it said, No gods, no masters. And I was like, oh, that's pretty... I guess he doesn't live in America. I guess he doesn't live in the world. I guess he doesn't... I mean, to, to think that you live a life with no masters, you may not recognize who your master is, but every person has a master. Every person serving someone or something, right? All are subject to some authority. All ascribe worth to something or someone. The question in our lives is this. To, to whom or what do we ascribe supreme authority, supreme worth, this idea of eminence. What do we deem most important? You've probably heard the analogy of, of placing someone on, or something on the throne of your heart, right? And you've probably been in Bible studies, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've probably been in Bible studies where people ask the question, who's on the throne of your heart? Your heart has a throne. Who's sitting on it? Is your job on the throne of your heart? Is, is your, is, is your, are your ambitions on the throne of your heart? Or is God himself resting and sitting on the throne of our hearts? Those of us who trust in God, who have chosen to follow Christ, those of us who bear the label Christian, as it were, have stated through that confession that we believe God, who revealed himself in the person of Christ, is worthy of praise. He's worthy of our surrender to Him. He's worthy of our adoration of Him. And that He is higher than any other God that exists anywhere in the planet, this world, right? We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, just a little plug for Sunday school. Um, he's the creator of all things. We believe that as believers. He's the one who has all power. We have those three O's that we ascribe to God. What are the three O's if you were naming them in a weird order? What are they? He, he is omnipotent. It's funny because I knew that everybody's going to say a different one first, right? Yeah. Um, 
He's, let's, do, let's do the omnipotent one. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's, he's all-knowing. Which one is that? Omniscient. And he's everywhere. Right. So we believe, if we're believers, if we trust God, if we have come to know Christ, we believe these things about him. That he's everywhere. We can't escape him. His intentions are all over the place. He's in London, believe it or not. He's in, he's in Syria right now. He's, he's, a, he's not only aware, but in some way, he's involved in every situation that we might see on the news, right? So God's everywhere. He's, he's, he's over all things. And so we know this. But sometimes, as believers, we, we have to have our thinking recalibrated. All of us have been, well, maybe not all of us, some of you, who has GPS in their phone or their car, right? And you, how, many of, how many of you guys have ever been driving and then and you, you drive and then you got the directions in there and then, you, and then she says or he says on the, on the thing, um, recalibrating or, or recalculating, right? And you go, why? Well, at, any, at the first available point, do a U-turn. You've heard that before, right? Or, or at, at the first, because you've gone off the, off, this is not the direction I was taking you. So at, when you can find an opportunity, when it's safe, do a U-turn, right? Some of you guys may have an, um, I don't know if you, how many of you run or do running or something? And you may have like a, an app on your phone with GPS in it. And then it'll, when you do the app that tracks your running, you know, sometimes to get the GPS right, it put, if you have an iPhone, it puts a little circle on there and you have to like, you know, do this weird thing with the phone with this little circle. You know what I'm talking about? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? If I had time, I'd show you, but I'm not. But, but the idea is that you, you, the, the thing, the phone needs to kind of recalibrate itself so it can know where you are. So it can tell you at the end, at the end, of, the, at, at the end of the run that you've done four miles or three miles or a mile and a half or half a mile. Or whatever you do, whatever you can do, you know, based upon your body type and everything, right? So the idea is that we, this idea of recalibrating, recalculating, redetermining is something that not only applies to these mundane things of life, but it also applies to our walk with God. We have to be recalibrated. You know, oftentimes when God sets a path for us to walk on, he will tell us, hey, we need to recalculate your route, because you've kind of veered off. And maybe none of you guys have been there, but I've been there, right? You're going on a course, and God says to you at some point, you're not on the right path. At the first available opportunity, do a U-turn. And go back to the road that you were supposed to make a right on, make a left, or left, make a right, right? The same thing was happening in the life of these, first, these Corinthians. They needed a recalibration. They needed to have their course reset. Um, we've been reading through, through this, and if you've been with us, you've kind of seen some of the back and forth that was going on with these Corinthians. They were worshiping their gifts. They were, some of them were thinking because they had the, the gift of tongues that they were better than other people, that they were, more, they were greater than others. Um, they needed this recalibration. And in verse, uh, 20, verses 20 to 25, we see the Apostle Paul trying to recalibrate their thinking so that they can reestablish for themselves 
the proper sense of worth. So Paul is saying, your worth is not, or, or the value or value should not be placed in the gift that you've received. Nor should you think that you are more valuable because you can do something or have an ability that God has given you. Right? He wants to recalibrate their sense of worth, both worth toward each other and worth concerning God. Ultimately, it's concerning God because if they value God rightly, correctly, then they would value each other correctly. You know, that can be said of us. If we value God properly, we're going to value one another properly. We're going to treat each other correctly. And so what he does for us, what I've kind of found in looking at this passage is that, you know, he's providing for us these, these four pillars. Of course, there's a lot more pillars of worship. But in this passage, we see four pillars, four things that hold up this idea of worship, this idea of giving value or assigning or ascribing value to something or someone. We see God or the Apostle Paul by way of the Holy Spirit giving for us four pillars of worship. And another interesting thing I just found this morning, I was looking at, I was preparing for Sunday school and I looked at my my shelf and I saw this little uh, Greek New Testament uh, little thing I have that lets you look at the... uh, uh, transliterated and translated version of the Bible in the context of the Greek terms. And in that, that uh, book, it points out that this idea, this word worship that the Apostle Paul uses in, in the end of, of this section, verse, uh, in verse 25, this is the only, it's, it's proscopane, it's the idea of prostrating yourself before the Lord. The only time Paul uses this word is in this section of the Bible, in this section of Scripture. The only time he uses this term. How important is it that we understand this idea of worship and what it means to literally lay ourselves out before God in our love and worship toward him? Verse 20 of chapter 14, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting at verse 20. We'll read and, and pray. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips, by the lips of foreigners, I will speak. Will I speak to this people? And even they, let me back up. Even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore... The whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider um, enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we trust that you are among us. We trust, God, that um, we are a people and we confess that we are a people who are in constant need of an awareness of your presence. Lord, so often in our lives we, we allow the difficulties and the 
matters of this world to draw us off course. We pray, God, that as we study your word this morning, that you would recalibrate our hearts, that you, would, you will tell us this morning how we must turn around and how we must walk on the path that you've set out before us. Help us understand what you say here in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in this section of Scripture, Paul is introducing a kind of a petition. And he says to these believers, uh, do not be children in your thinking. And in doing so, he starts off this idea of this first pillar. He gives his first pillar. And, and that is um, not being children in our thinking is, is the idea of us being discerning in our thinking. And so the first pillar is this pillar of discernment. This is the principle that, that Paul had addressed on a previous occasion. If you recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he also tells these believers who had a proclivity to go around and saying, well, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and, and I was saved because of this preacher. I was, saved, I was baptized by this guy and I was, I was brought to faith by this person. Paul says in, that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this shouldn't be the way you see things. You guys are thinking very, in, in a very childish, in, in that case, he called them infants who could not receive the strong and pure word. Um, he says that they were, being, they, were, they were held back from receiving deeper things because they were thinking these, these jealous thoughts toward one another. They didn't discern the reality that jealousy prohibits maturity. He expressed the same principle in Ephesians chapter 4. In that passage, verses 11 to 16, he explains that not being children means that we are not carried about by every wind of doctrine. You know, when you think of a child, a, a child may not fully understand all the nuances of a theological point, right? Most children don't. Matter of fact, you can say most, a lot of adults don't understand some of the finer points of, of various theological arguments that exist out there, right? What Paul says to, to the Ephesians is that, hey guys, you have to be aware of what God is saying. You have to be so informed of what God has declared that you're not, you're, you're not allowing people to carry you around with all these imaginative ideas, these imaginative ways of thinking, right? This is discernment. The idea that we are not taken by deceitful schemes. He says that they must be able to build up or must be people who build up their ability to speak truth in love, the same way that Christ spoke. Remember, even in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that even though you know these things about these great mysteries, um, maturity is, and walking in love is, speaking that truth with love, right? The same idea is expressed in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 to 14. Here we found the principle that Spiritual maturity is evidenced by our ability to properly discern the purposes of God that have been revealed to us. And so discernment is a key uh, aspect of our growth, right? Is it not? You know, it, discernment is the idea of developing a, a kind of a grid system whereby we can detect and, and call out error for what it is. When Paul says... He gives them this exhortation to not be children in your thinking. He's literally saying, cease becoming little children in your understanding. Uh, stop what you're doing. Uh, the action, that, what they were doing is what they, they were believing 
that it was reasonable to make public declarations in a tongue uh, and not have those statements explained clearly. So remember, the, 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 these people who were in the Corinthian church thought that it was okay to sit amongst each other and talk in these foreign tongues, say these, these things, and not have someone interpret and make it clear what they were saying. That was an immature thing. A second problem was that they were thinking more highly of themselves because God had given them a spiritual gift. We talked about that earlier. Um, another thing that they were doing wrong is that they thought it was reasonable to treat others with dishonor who didn't have those gifts. Again, we talked about that earlier too. Their discernment and their immaturity held them back from doing what God had kind of was preparing them to do, but it also held others back from receiving the word of God. You know, for these believers, he outlines this principle that the mature follower of Christ is one who has discernment regarding practice. He's the one who can, um, being led by the Holy Spirit, conclude what the believer should be doing both inside the body and outside the body, right? Because discernment doesn't just allow us to properly act in the group of believers, but discernment also leads us to act properly outside of this group when we're not around other Christians, not around other people that can clearly point out things that we've, we may have done wrong or things that we should do better. And, and the principle here also is this, that if we are not proper discerners, we can, put our, we can run the risk of putting ourselves in a situation where it's harder to worship God, right? Kind of see what I'm saying? And think about it like this. If you're, a, if you're a young person going off to college for the first time and you, you're traveling out and you're going to a new place and you're, you're making decisions about friends, about classes, about whatever it might be, if your discernment about who to be around, about what to follow, what to do, what clubs to join, if your discernment is not right, then you're going to run the risk of putting yourself in a situation where you are going to have difficulty worshiping God, right? You're going to be in a situation where you're going to be with people that might be opposed to you worshiping God, all because you didn't use proper discernment at the outset of your decision-making, right? The same thing goes for anything, taking a job, um, you know, deciding what, what, what movies to go see, what music to listen to. If we're not discerning properly, we, have, we run the risk of putting ourselves in a situation that we're, we won't be able to, to e- more easily and adequately worship, worship God. So that's why discernment is such a key to this idea of worship. It's one of the great pillars there. Next point is this. Um, another aspect of this, or another uh, p- pillar of worship, and, and you guys can't see that, can you? Can you go back to that real quick? Can you read that? Is, is, you can read it? Okay, good. We've been talking about these projectors. And um, sometimes they're not as clear. So I digress. Going back. Just want to get your opinion. Um, back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Keep, uh, verse 20, part B. He says, first off, do not be children in your thinking. And the second part, he says, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. Verse 21. In the law it is written by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues 
are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. You know, he expands on this idea of maturity by asking these believers in Corinth to discern why God did something in history. You know, we we practice this in Sunday school sometimes. You know, we sit down and we say, okay, God just revealed something to us. Okay, God just revealed why he is, or he is revealing to us why he is judging Judah. Or he's, he's showing us that he's going to judge this particular nation, you know, Egypt, or whatever it might be. And then we have to go back and ask ourselves the question, well, why did God do this? Well, how, how will we ever know why God does what he does? How can we know why God does the things that he does? It's not rhetorical. You can just yell it out. Say it again. Understanding the scripture, right? You know, we're not going to know why God does what he does until we understand why he did similar things in the past, right? He's telling, Paul's telling these Corinthians, you guys are really excited about this gift of tongues and the ability to proclaim all these foreign languages amongst each other. But, but I want you to think back, he says to them, in history... God actually used the, the, this confusion of languages or this kind of speaking in a foreign tongue to judge his people, right? You know, he, he's kind of warning them against the, the folly of self-trust. Isaiah 28, let's go back to there because he's quoting Isaiah 28. Turn to your Bibles to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. If you're not familiar with the book of Isaiah, you know, we, uh, it's a... It's, it's a, Isaiah's a prophet, and he's writing his prophecy to the southern kingdom, which was Judah. And in his prophecy, he is, he is telling this nation that God will bring judgment upon them, and part, he bring judgment upon, upon them because of their, their straying off into serving and, and uh, worshiping for, uh, false gods and idols. And a part of this punishment for them was that he would bring in a foreign nation to overcome them, the southern kingdom. Who was that foreign nation that would overcome them in the southern kingdom? You guys remember? In the southern kingdom, not the northern kingdom. Babylon, the, southern, the northern kingdom was who? Who took over? Assyria, right? the, the Assyrians. So, so the southern kingdom would be taken over by the Babylonians. And Isaiah is actually prophesying about this future event before it even happened. Well, if it's a prophecy, I guess it's self-defining that it would... But yeah, you understand what I'm saying. He's, he's speaking of these things before they happen and giving great detail. Isaiah 28. Let's look at... Um, we'll start at verse, verse 7. These also... He's speaking of the priests and these, these people that uh, have, fought, have failed God. These also, Isaiah 28, verse 7, reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge, they say? 
And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept upon precept. Line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, This is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. Verse 13. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared um, and taken. In this chapter, the prophet is warning against the folly of self-trust and he speaks on behalf of God and forming these leaders that that rightly placed desire will lead to a restful, abundant life. Ill-placed desire will lead to a hardened, callous, cold-hearted disdain for God. These priests, they scoffed at Isaiah. Look over at verse, verse 9. They're, these are the priests scoffing at Isaiah, saying that his message was too basic for their intellect. His message was too, too elementary for their minds. You know, in saying this, they're actually trying to disparage Isaiah, but in reality, they're giving him a compliment. They're, they're complimenting him for being a, a Bible expositor. For explaining the word verse by verse, precept upon precept, so that the people of God could understand what God has to say. They're they're criticizing him for that. Why are they criticizing him for that? Because their desires were all all broken apart. As a result of this critique of Isaiah and as a result of their failure to obey God, you can kind of see it talks about them reeling with wine and strong drink. You know, this idea of, of, of... of being uh, of staggering with strong drink calls to mind the notion that um, this notion that when our minds are uh, taken away or confused by wine, it's going to be very difficult for us to discern what God has said. You know, if, if we're if we're desiring more strong drink, or in, in this case, these guys were were again um, taken up and vomiting even uh, with, uh, with with their parties. Um, it's going to be impossible to understand God's purposes and His will. And so God says in, in, this, in this passage that as a result of their sin, as a result of their misplaced desire, um, as, because they rejected Him, they would, they would be confused. And so now this simple message that they, that they were, were listening to from Isaiah would be confused by foreigners who would come in and speak a language they didn't know. And as a result of that, because all this stuff is happening, at some point, they're going to long for those days when things were simple. I was telling the Sunday school class this morning, can you imagine if in our country, you know, God, like, whatever, I don't want to say judged this country or did something, and a, a very similar scenario happened where all of our leaders were destroyed or did something, something happened to them, and then now we're ruled by the North Koreans. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if Kim Jong-un somehow developed something and then he was able to take over the world and then now we're under the rule and leadership of this, this madman? Can you imagine that? 
I mean, can you think, even think about that? What would that be like? And think about right now. We could sit here and I can, I can talk about the Word of God and you can, we can discuss it in Sunday school. We can go to do picnics on the park and, and talk about the Word and, and we can sit down and, and fellowship with one another around the Word and we can do all these great things. But some leader comes in, changes our entire structure, shuts down every church. We can't come and worship anymore. You know, we can't have Bible studies anymore because if we do, we'll be shot and killed. You know, just imagine, just imagine with me. Can you imagine a society where everything is turned upside down? The language is no longer English. It's some weird mix of English and North Korean, whatever that might sound like. I have an idea. But um, my wife's Korean, so that's it. But, um, you know, but, but the reality is that, can you imagine this type of existence? Can you imagine the longing you would have for the days when you can sit down and we can have conversations and discussions about the simple things of God's word, right? Can you imagine being in a situation in your life where you're longing for those precept upon precept, line upon line, little by little declarations of the word of God? Praise God we can do that now. And praise God that if if our desire is right, if our desire is right, we can take joy in what God is declaring. Amen? You know, they're they're criticizing Isaiah for for being a clear teacher of the Word of God. You know, there's a lesson we should learn from this episode in Isaiah. And of course, you know, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, 20, that, that we are to desire what is good. And, and even more, desire that our desire for good will grow. Desire what is good and desire that our desire for what is good will grow. Keep in mind, this punishment that was received by the rebellious men of, of Isaiah's day came about because their desire for the things of God had left them. Their desire for the things of God were gone. Jeremiah, Jeremiah repeats kind of a similar um, idea and punishment in his prophecy. You can turn there if you want, but in Jeremiah chapter 5, it's one book over. I was reminded by Eric this week that Jeremiah came after Isaiah. Thanks. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 5, uh, we see here a very similar principle. You know, starting at verse 3, you know, Jeremiah points out that these people desiring things other than God had had their faces turned into rock. Verse 3, what does he say there? He says, O Lord, do uh, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, um, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Man, I don't want that to be said of me. Can you imagine somebody, somebody, God saying of you, that you've refused to listen, your face has, has turned harder than rock. You can't be changed by God anymore. Verses 4 and 5, Jeremiah points out that this condition didn't only exist for the poor and marginally educated of this day, but it existed also for the leaders, the achievers in his day. It says in verse 5, I will go to the great and speak to them for they know the way of the Lord and the justice of their God, but they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Again, a group of men who 
broke the commandment of God, refused to listen to God, refused to desire God. And as a result, we see what happens here. Verse 8, these had become well-practiced in the works of sin, adultery, covetousness. Verse 8 says this, they were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife, he says there. In other words, their sin, their rebellion, their stubbornness had grown to the point where they just lived out adultery. They lived out covetousness, envy, strife. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that their misplaced desire had grown to be treachery. The idea of treachery is this idea of infidelity toward God, unfaithfulness to God. This is what it had developed into their lives. Verses 14 and 19, I'll read a little bit of this. Verse 14, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, speaking of Jeremiah, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. God says, because your desire has been removed from me, I am going to send among you a nation that will draw you to your knees as a people so that you might again desire me is what it's got what what God is saying right and so we see in this as as Paul kind of quotes this idea or quotes this passage or quotes this this reality in the life of these uh these the, these the people of God in the old testament he's saying to this nation here in 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 the, among the Corinthians, that without a proper desire for God, without understanding his purposes and doing what he does, you can find yourself in the exact same situation. If you're not worshiping God in the way that he's called us to worship him, to, to ascribe worth to him in the way that he's called us to do that, we run the risk of being in the same situation where we walk around with stone faces, walk around with, broke, with stone of, stony hearts, walk around in living lives whereby we cannot be changed by the principles of God. May that not be said of us, that we cannot be changed by the principles of God. You know, Paul says that uh, this, this tongue's gift was a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. If you recall, you guys remember in Acts chapter 2, where the gift was first given? Um, if you remember in Acts chapter 2, that's when the, the, the Holy Spirit came down. And when the Holy Spirit came down, he, he gave these men the ability to speak in these tongues. And as they're speaking in tongues, what's the response of the people around? What was their response? Were they happy? Were they, were they joyful? Were they excited? The people that were hearing these guys speak in tongues, were they excited? They were, they were amazed. It says they were perplexed. You know, they, they weren't, they were, they were bewildered, my translation says. It doesn't say they were joyful or jubilant. They were terrified by what they were seeing. 
They didn't know what to do. As a matter of fact, they thought these guys were drunk. And they were saying, I don't know what's going on. These people are crazy. And then Peter says, hey, let me put it in context for you. And as Peter puts it in context, what do they say then? What do they do? They say, what must I do? How should I respond to what you have just declared to us? And they repent. They're baptized, right? Worship is Worship can only be a reality in our lives when our desires are properly placed. When our desires are properly placed and when we understand the reason for which God does what he does, right? So desire is a key one, a key pillar. We're going to run through the next two. Desire is a key pillar of of worship. Uh, Discernment is a key pillar of worship. The third pillar of worship is discipline. This, this passage, just real quickly in, in chapter uh, 14, we see kind of this, this almost uh, um, just a few observations that, that kind of require us to talk briefly about. One is this idea of the whole church coming together. Paul says that if the whole church come together, right? And, and some may say, well, you know, in, in that day, I thought the churches were meeting in houses. Well, they did meet in houses, but occasionally they would come together into a larger group. And Paul draws this really almost hyperbolic um, image of everyone, every church coming together. You know, First Baptist Church, Monterey Church, Shoreline. You know, you name all your churches in the community. And imagine every church came together and we all just start speaking in tongues. Just imagine that. Every person, all 2,000 people just start speaking in tongues. Paul's like, if someone heard that, they might think you're crazy. Right? That's kind of what he's saying there. The second thing that kind of sticks out here, in other, in other words, if we're not disciplined in that, in that exercise, that gift, we might not put across the, set the, right, the right image. The second thing that kind of sticks out here is this idea of the unlearned or, or the unbeliever. And so, and, and Paul makes this point again, in looking at verse, uh, verse 23. Get back over there real quick. Uh, verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? He says there. He says that the unbeliever or the outsider needs to understand what the will of God is. And if you are not disciplined in the exercise of those gifts, it's not going to be possible for them to, to totally get what God is saying. And so discipline is a key part when thinking about the unbeliever. Uh, another thing here, we, we've kind of alluded to it, but he, he makes that comment about the, this idea of, of people seeing you as madmen. Again, imagine if even just us, this 40 or 50 people in the room, if we all just start speaking in tongues together at one time, just random foreign tongues. And then somebody who doesn't know about Jesus walks in and they hear us talking. They, again, they would, they would think we're, we're, we're crazy or something's, they're looking for snakes next, right? You know, or, or, or people drinking strychnine or something because they're wondering what we're doing, right? So, so the idea that Paul's pointing out here is that we have to be disciplined in our exercise of God's word. You know, if we, if we believe that God is valuable and we want other people to understand his value and his worth, we have to be disciplined in how we exercise what we exercise. That goes into our planning, that goes into our proclamation of the truth, that goes into our study of God's word, whatever it might be, when we do what we do as believers, 
We must do it with excellence. We must do it with a sense of discipline around what, uh, what responsibilities God has put before us. The last, um, I have these available if you want to read the notes later, but uh, the last pillar of proper worship is disclosure. So we have discipline, we have desire, properly placed desire, we have discernment being a pillar of worship, and then we have this idea of disclosure. This idea of disclosure. Verses 24 to 25. We'll read that. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. You know, we... Just briefly, if you, if you think about Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, we see uh, the writer of Hebrews making the statement that the word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to cut, separate joints and marrow, soul and spirit, or mind and spirit, you know, soul and spirit, right? Um, and then it goes on to say, no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, the word of God is effective in disclosing the problem of men. The word of God is effective in slicing through all the nonsense and revealing to the individual and to others what is in the heart of that person. And so in this, this last point about worship, we're finding that with, without, without disclosure, with this idea of revealing what was once hidden, without disclosure, we'll never be able to properly worship God. If we're not confessing our sins before God, if we're, if we're not receiving others after they have confessed their sins before God and open up their hearts to Him, if, if we're not people who... who admire or, or long for this complete openness before God, then we won't worship him correctly. We won't worship him rightly. At the very end of this, of this chapter, of this section of scripture, Paul says that the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that he will worship and declare that God is really among you. And it's, he kind of does a play on words there. He says they will, they will fall on their face and in falling on their face, they will fall on their, on their face. They will fall on their face in worship. Again, prostrate, prostrate, not prostrate, um, before the Lord, right? This idea of laying ourselves out bare before God. And, and, and the hope is that through our ministry, through our efforts, through our love for those who do not know God and even love for those who do know God, they might be moved to worship Him. Right? It's one thing for us to worship God rightly. It's another thing for us to, in our lives, live them in such a way that other people want to worship Him in that same way. May that be said of us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we...
this is a lot here that you've revealed to us in, in your word. And, and Lord, we, we know that um, as human beings, we are incapable of fully grasping every principle that you would uh, teach us in, in a one-hour moment. And so, God, we pray that you will solidify the, this calling to be individuals who desire you above anything else. And that you will solidify in our hearts this responsibility that we have to reflect your son so much in what we do that others around us will want to know you in the same way that we do. Lord, we love you. And as we sing now, we pray that you will receive our songs in Christ's name. Amen.